Amen. Thank you, Jordan. Well, if you have your copy of God's Word and would like to open to the book of Micah, chapter 4, we are going to be there, and that's the main place we're going to be. If you don't have a Bible, there's a pew Bible in front of you. You can grab it and open to page 657. And if you're new to reading Scripture, uh, the big numbers are the chapter numbers, and the small numbers are the verse numbers, and that's kind of where we're going to be. We're going to cover a massive amount of five verses this morning. And while you're turning there, I want to kind of catch us up on something because I realized a few weeks ago I left us a little bit unresolved. If you remember a few weeks ago, I told you a story about when I was in in high school and I zipped around my baseball coach's bus on the way to school one morning and was promptly scolded when I got out of my car. He told me I was driving unsafe. And I told you, I was feeling very heavy-hearted about that, so I wrote him a note because I was a little too afraid to stand up in front of him and say, Mr. Errol, I apologize. So I wrote him a note because I'm just a wimp like that, and and then I kind of left it there, and after church, Joyce asked me, she said, so did he ever forgive you? And I want to assure you that, yes, he did forgive me. In fact, we went on to have a, a good relationship for the rest of my high school career. In fact, a little bit during and after college, I got to coach baseball with him. It was a, really a, a fun time. Um, and then we were, our, the restoration happened so much so that we had him and my youth pastor growing up tag team to marry Danielle and me. So he wasn't officially allowed to marry us, so he did what he could. And then my youth pastor did all the official stuff. So, yes, he did forgive me. And I I want to tell you, there's something beautiful that happens when restoration happens, when there's that division, and then there's that healing, there's that conflict, and then there's that reunion. And, And if you remember, over the last few weeks, as we've looked at Micah, we've looked at the ways that Micah has called out the people. In chapter 1, he said, you guys are, are committing adultery. You're committing idolatry against God, against Yahweh. Cut it out. And then in chapter 2, he said, you guys are, 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 are coveting other people's things so much that you're acting like ungodly people. And then he gave them a bit of hope in the end of chapter 2. And then in chapter 3, as we saw last week, he called out the leaders because it wasn't a problem only among the people. This was a top-down issue. Their political leaders were acting corruptly. Their religious leaders were acting unjustly. And it was all a big mess. But here in chapter 4, Micah makes a turn. In fact, in these five verses, Micah turns and gives us a little bit of hope about something that's happening, something that will happen in the future. And if these verses sound familiar to you, it's because these verses are almost identical to verses that Isaiah has in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. And it's unknown if Micah got it from Isaiah or Isaiah got it from Micah, but they are, or if they got it from a a separate source and they just combined their sources and just preached from that same material. But one of the things we do get to see is that there's a promise of a future, a promise of a hope for God's righteous rule over the remnant of Israel and Judah. This is what restoration will look like. It's an invitation to come to the mountain of the Lord. And as we walk through this today, we'll consider the passage and and the message of these verses, and then we'll conclude with some meditations on how we can apply what Micah is saying here. So if you want to take notes, if you like doing that kind of stuff in your outline, 
we notice that Micah begins with God's promise, and that promise is the supremacy of his ways. What, God, what Micah shows is that God's ways are supreme, and God's ways are above all other things, and everyone else is going to notice it. But I got to ask you a question. How do you view your parents? Or how did you view your parents? And I want to, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking at different stages in life, we look at our parents differently. As young kids, we see our parents as being the end all be a. They're just a sense of hope. There's just everything. I feel safe and secure around my parents. And then somewhere around 11, 12, 13 years old, our parents became really stupid. Our parents just don't know. They don't know what it's like to be a teenager. They don't know what it's like, and they are asking me to do ridiculous things. And then as you continue to grow up, and maybe that spreads on into your 20s, and I found for me, my parents got really smart when I got married, and they were even smarter when we started having kids. I'm like, ah, they weren't idiots. I was the problem. And I think that what's happening here is that Micah, as he talks about this, he's, he's mentioning that God is sort of has that same perspective from the people. Some people are looking at God and saying, God, you're not that kind of God. You're not the God I want to worship. But one day there will be a day when everyone will bow before him. Micah chapter 4, verse 1 says this. It says, it shall come to pass in the latter days or at some time in the future that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of all mountains. It shall be lifted up above the hills and all peoples shall flow to it. And again, this happens sometime in the latter days. We don't know when this is, sometime in the future. Maybe this is after the exile, because if you remember in, in Judah's history, Judah is living in the, pal- in the promised land right now, and in, a, in about 150 years, they're going to be sent off to the nation of Babylon, and they'll be in exile for about 70 years before they're brought back. So maybe these latter days are days when God brings them back into the promised land. Maybe these latter days are, are days when Christ is walking on earth and he, ish, he ushers in a new era, a new age, a church age, when, when there are people from every nation, tribe, and tongue who confess him as Lord. Maybe this latter day, and I think certainly this latter day will be in eternity. And I know Micah says here that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be the highest among all peaks, the highest of all mountains. And, and I don't think Micah is talking about a, a, a figure or a literal mountain rising. He's not saying Zion is going to be higher than Mount Everest. What he is saying is that from the perspective of the people, God's ways will be so far above everything else that it will be seen as the highest peak. The mountain of the Lord will be supreme because the mountain is where God dwells the mountain is where he is and the beauty of this Micah does this really cool little play on words the beauty is that everybody uh, that all people will flow to the mountain of the Lord they will stream to the mountain of the Lord people will come to realize that God's ways are superior that his standards are just and right 
just as young adults or as young parents, we begin to realize how wise our parents were, everybody will come to see, yes, God is good and God is just. And the cool thing that Micah does is this play on words, the idea that people will flow or stream to the mountain. Because often, what happens? Water runs uphill or downhill? Down. Water tends to go downhill. But here he's saying, no, people will flow to it. My, my family, I've got family that lives in Southern California. And it's interesting, my dad lives in the desert on one side of a mountain range, and my brother lives in the plains or in the lowlands on the other side of the mountain range. And as you know, California has lots of problems with water and lots of problems with fires and all that kind of stuff. Well, a few weeks ago, the mountains in between where my dad lives and where my brother lives got dumped on with snow, somewhere between six and eight feet of snow. And, as, and, and many Californians, I think a, a lot of people in the lowlands are thinking, yes, finally this drought will be over. Because as spring comes and as the summer comes, those mountain peaks will, will begin to melt and they will flow rivers of blessing in the lowlands, in the valleys. And that's what we expect, blessing to go from on high to down below. And yet Micah is saying the people will flow to the mountain, not to bless God, not to surely to honor God, but God is the one who does the blessing. But they're coming to learn. They're coming to grow. In fact, that brings us to the next point, and that is the people's perspective. They're coming to the mountain of the Lord to learn and to live. You see, with the wisdom and supremacy of God's ways being realized as prosperous and value, people stream to the mountain of God. They stream to his reign to pledge allegiance and alliance with God. Chapter 4, verse 2 says, And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the God, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. They're coming to learn God's ways. But what does learning require? Learning requires humility. Learning requires coming and recognizing that there's something I don't know. We end up coming before God, coming before his mountain in humility and submission, saying, teach me your ways, because obviously my ways are not right. Learning requires humility. It requires submission. But what is, what is it that they are learning? The ESV tells us they're learning the law. They're learning God's law. And the law here refers to God's teaching, all that God instructs about doctrine and life in every part of Scripture. God reveals himself in certain ways in the Torah, in the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And then in the historical books, God helps us understand how he works with this very unique people, the people of Israel. And then in the poetry, we get to hear the expression of God's people giving worship back to God. We get to learn how, how God's people deal with disappointment, how God's people deal with, with trials, with suffering, with lament. And then as we're reading here in Micah, we get to learn what God specifically wanted the prophets to speak to his people. And then we get these weird apocalyptic sections. 
But even in those, we get to learn the beauty of who God is, his majesty, his sovereignty. And then when we turn the page into the New Testament, we get the Gospels, and we get to read and hear the message of the Lord. We get to learn from his ways in things like the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus recasts the vision and the application of what God taught on Mount Sinai when God gave the initial covenant to Moses. We get to go into the book of Acts and learn all that God did in the early church and look forward to what he's going to continue to do in us. And then we get to read those intimate letters from Paul and, and other guys as they write to churches and, and teach doctrine, help people understand this is how you should live. This is how you should act. From there to the pastoral letters and finally to the book of Revelation, every part of God's word is wisdom and truth and knowledge of him and his ways. And ultimately, we have to recognize, as John tells us in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And as we, see, as we saw when we studied all of John's book, we realized that the Word, that Word, that law, that teaching is Jesus Christ. So I, I want to ask us, how do we see the treasure that God's Word is? Do we value God's word, God's law for all that it is, or do we take it for granted? Do we think, ah, I can take it or leave it? But after communicating about God's word and God's reign and the flow of the nations up to the mountain of the Lord, Micah discusses the product of this coming to the Lord, of his reign, and that product is justice, peace, and prosperity. You see, when the nations finally lay down all their idols, when they finally stop trusting in their own ways, when they finally lay down their arms and come before God and say, yes, there is one God, and it is the triune God, God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and he is the only true one God, and that is the God we worship. That is the God we are going to humble ourselves in front of. Then we will realize the product of God's ways is justice, peace, and prosperity or flourishing. Look at verses 3 and 4. It says, he, meaning God, shall judge between many peoples, and he shall decide disputes for strong nations far away, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore, but they shall sit every man under his tree, under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. In 2006, when there were some decisions happening over the, that the defense secretary was making, George W. Bush famously said in his good Texas accent, I'm the decider. He was the guy who was going to decide whether or not this, the secretary of defense was going to stay or go. He, was the, he wasn't going to be influenced by everybody's opinions he said, I'm going to decide. And what we see here in, in Micah chapter 4 is that God will be bringing justice, that God is the decider, that all the people will recognize that God's justice is true and right. His decisions are not based on whims or cultural trends, but his justice depends on his righteous standard. But secondly, because of God's righteous judgment and justice, Micah says that there will be peace. 
There will be peace. The weapons of warfare, sword and spears that they knew very well will be converted into farm and vineyard implements. They won't need them to fight. Imagine that. Imagine how much we spend on defense as a nation and how much every nation around the world spends on on that kind of thing. And then imagine what it would be like if all of our weapons were laid down and we melted all that metal into something different, something prosperous. And Micah gives us this picture. He says that swords will be beaten into plowshares. Plowshares are, are those things that you would pull behind an ox in order to till a row so you can plant seed. It, it, it's something, so now you're taking this weapon of death and producing life from the essence of what is there. And spears, he says spears will be will be uh, put into pruning hooks, those things so you can reach up high and, and prune trees and get fruit down. And then he says, the lessons of warfare will no longer be needed. We won't have to have a war college anymore. We won't have to go there to learn how to fight better because God is gonna be the God of justice for all people. There will be peace. And people will be able to sit in perfect peace and there will be no fear. I mean, think about it. Think about all the ways that we do fear. We could look at the things that are happening in the world. There's that fear that someone's going to act idiotically and do something really stupid here in town and think, what do, what do we do? Where, why, what's happening to our little town? Or what happens when our, our children get lost and when they're walking or riding their bikes and the fear that we have. What happens when we worry about what's happening among one nation or another? What happens, that fear that we have when we fear that that disease will come back? And I think what Micah is telling us here is that there will be a day when fear will be gone. Perfect peace will be there. We don't have to worry about the weather patterns, major snowstorms or hurricanes. We don't have to worry about global wars. We don't have to worry about political turmoil. We don't have to worry about being robbed or thieved. There will be perfect peace, and we can sit in prosperity. And he uses that picture of a, of a vineyard. Everyone will be able to sit down, and that's the third thing he brings up. He says, he talks about prosperity. Each person will sit under his vine and under his fig tree. There will be, you'll just be able to relax and enjoy the peace that is with God. Both the vine and Fig tree are symbols of prosperity and peace. And so the promise of God's the, the promise of God results in the perspective of learning from the people as it produces justice, peace, and prosperity. And as a result of this, Micah seems to speak on behalf of the nation of Judah with progress. And that progress is a commitment to walk a godly walk. And we see that in verse 5. Now, now, I want you to understand the context here because remember, Micah is prophesying 150 or so years before the nation of Judah is going to be taken off into exile. So as Micah says this, in the latter days, in days to come, something's happening on the other side of that exile. So the, he's telling folks, look, this is going to happen. That punishment, that discipline will happen. But there will be a day. And so the people begin to respond with this hope, with this commitment. Look at verse 5, and it says, For, the people, for all the people's walk 
each in the name of its God. But we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. You see, Micah is promising a future hope, a future restoration for the remnant. Judah will be sent to the nations, but Micah is urging them, even as they go among the nations of foreign gods, they should walk faithfully in the name of their God. Even in the face of implied hostilities, as John Calvin writes, he is urging or confessing a present walk. Why wait for the future? Why wait for that day when someday God will reign in person and reign supreme and we, every, all that peace will happen? Why not walk faithfully now? You see, when someone walks in the name of someone, especially in God, he refers to walking under his authority. So for us, why do we need to act like rebellious kids before God? Why, shouldn't, why can't we just... Come before him and say, God, I trust you and I want to walk in your ways. Help me to do that now. And just as Israel and Judah were exiled into the nations of Assyria and Babylon, nations that worshiped false gods, as people who are in the world but not of it, as it says in John 15, we face peoples and nations who walk in the names of their own gods. And I'm not just talking about other deities. I'm talking about the gods of things like consumerism, nationalism, individualism, progressive groupthink. If you don't think this, then you're, you're out of step. You're on the wrong side of history. In addition to all of these deities, the deities of various religions around the world, and a lot of people wonder, a lot of people have asked, well, if we would all just get along, if we would all just let everybody, let bygones be bygones, then there would be perfect peace. If we could let everybody coexist, as the bumper sticker says. And I think there, there's some justice to that. There's some, maybe not justice, there's politeness to that. But Neil Shenvey, in his, his book on Christian belief, in fact, there's a few copies in the book nook, he says that some people think that peace will only come through universal acceptance of certain norms and ideals. The problem is that various religious systems all believe differently, and they hold those truths to be just and right. So how can two opposing views be totally accepting of one another? So we have to stand firm. Not have to. We get to stand firm, walking in the name of our God. Walking, sure, in peace and love and justice. But not compromising. So how will we walk in the face of the gods of our age? Will we walk under the authority in the name of our triune God? So as we close, let me bring up a couple of points to ponder and that is that we need to come to the mountain of the Lord. We need to come to the mountain. And there are a couple ways I think that we do that. First of all, we come initially for salvation. You see, Jesus was tried on Mount Zion now in Jerusalem a couple, several hundred years after Micah prophesied. And on that mountain, next to that mountain, he was crucified. He was declared guilty, wrongly, and then he was treated like a criminal and 
hung on a cross next to Mount Zion in order that our sin debt could be paid. And so in response, we get to initially come humbly, recognizing that we have nothing to bring. The only thing we bring to Jesus is our sin. The only thing that we bring to Jesus is our sin. And he says, let me take that burden from you. So we get to come repentant, saying, Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know that you are perfect and you died on the cross, as we're going to study in a few weeks and celebrate around Easter Come repentant and turn and trust in Jesus. You see, in, in, as we read in, in Acts chapter 16, finally we have to come believing. The jailer, when, when uh, Paul was in prison, the uh, jailer asked him, and the doors opened, there was this huge earthquake, and the jailer says, man, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, only believe. Only believe. Believe. You don't have to work for it. Jesus did it all. We sing, uh, sometimes we sing that hymn, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Only believe. Only believe. And so I want to ask you, have you believed? Do you believe that Jesus sufficiently paid for the price of your sin? Have you trusted him? Come to the mountain of the Lord. And for those who have as believers who are We are called to come to the mountain of the Lord. But the question is, how do we come? How do we go to the mountain of the Lord? How do we come up there now? He's, he's, yes, he's in heaven. He's reigning. He is there, but but his reign is not intimate, intimate, and it's not personal right now. So how do I come to the mountain of the Lord? Well, I think there's a few ways we do this. First of all, we come personally. We come daily reading the word, praying to seek and valuing the treasure that is his word ingesting it spiritually and allowing his word to be on our minds and on our thoughts and in our mouths. Do you come to the mountain of the Lord personally? Secondly, we need to come, I think, as a family. As parents, it's our responsibility to read and teach the word to our kids. Joel Beakey has a resource called the Family Worship Bible Guide, and he, he, he uses that. He asks a bunch of questions in every chapter of the Bible in order to help parents walk through, how can I instruct, how can I lead my family in a conversation on Scripture? Because sometimes for some of us, it feels awkward to read the Word as a family and then to ask, well, what do I ask? I know there's one family that, that takes the midweek email that we, we send out, that little letter, and they read the passage that we're going to talk about on Sunday, and they ask those questions to their kids. Maybe that's something that we can do. But we need to come personally. We need to come as a family. We need to come as a congregation. We come to feast on the Lord. When we gather, I mentioned this earlier, but when we gather together, this truly is like a banquet. I wish we had a big table and we could all sit around and there was real food. But, but we come for spiritual food and we feast on the word when we read it. We feast on the word when we sing it. Do you know how much scripture we have already sung this morning? Verses and chapters and so many truths that we've already sung. And then as we heard earlier, Brian, when he he prayed the word, he took the word of God and allowed various truths in the word to be our expression to God. We feast in prayer. 
We listen to the word preached. And then in a little bit, we're going to reflect on how the Spirit would have us apply the word. So I got to ask, do you see our time together as this banquet? As a banquet before the Lord. As a feast. I pray that we would value this time. But then it begs one final question, and that is why. Not only how should we come, but why should we come? Why should we come to the mountain of the Lord? Why should we come as personally and as a congregation and as a family? I think, first of all, we come to learn. We're not just coming to check off a box and hope that God's going to be happy. Hey, God, I showed up at church today. I hope I made it. Did I get an A for effort in your book? Thanks, God. No, but we're coming to learn. We're coming to learn from our creator, to allow his mind to be in our minds, to, his, to think his thoughts, to understand his perfect wisdom. And this is not simply an, exor- an academic exercise so that we can gain more knowledge, but it's so that we can live. We learn to live. And we live now. We will get glimpses of the peace that is to come as we live out God's ways here, as we learn to love our neighbors, as we raise our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, as we share with those in need and so much more. But then one day, we will learn to live in that eternity. And oh, what a joy that will be when we get to be face to face with Jesus, when we get to live with him for eternity, when we get to to the end of our lives and hear him say, well done. Rick Warren famously said a few years ago that our life now is preparation for eternity. We're going to spend a whole, much, a whole bunch more time in eternity than we are going to spend here. And that preparation begins with trusting in Jesus as your Savior. And so as I said before, have you done that? And are you living in his name? Can people look at your life and say, ah, that's a Jesus person? Can they hear your speech and say, ah, that's, that's a Jesus person? See, at the mountain of the Lord, there is peace. At the mountain of the Lord, there is righteousness. At the mountain of the Lord, there is justice. At the mountain of the Lord, there is fellowship with God. Come to the mountain of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your